Hey, I, I want to recognize some people who are week in, week out, behind the scenes, making things happen around here. Our production team, they do video, they do audio, they do graphics, they do lights, and they deserve some recognition and thanks for the great job they do. You only recognize them when something doesn't go right. So we thought recognizing that, that most things go right around here, so we're very grateful for them. Good to have you with us if you're joining us online. If it's your first time here, really good to have you. You're joining us as a, at a great time as we're beginning this brand new series today about the core beliefs of Christianity. These are really our foundational uh, beliefs, uh, uh, the faith that we profess, the things that really make us Christians. And so no matter where you are on your faith journey, we hope that you will at least better understand Christianity and even more so that you would embrace these beliefs because these really are essential to a saving faith and to a united faith. We're going to look at these 10 beliefs that are found in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church way back then. He said, these are the things that unite us in fellowship as Christians. These are the things that we have oneness in. And, and this, here's the passage, verses 4 through 6. There is one body. In fact, let's all say this out loud together, okay, everybody? Out loud, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we're going to begin talking about this one God in this first series. One Father, one Son, one Spirit. This, this series that we're calling Supernatural because this God is far beyond what is natural. Okay, He is supernatural because some things just can't be explained. And that's what makes God God. Right? We can't explain fully how there can be three persons and one being. How God can become a man. But we're able to know these things because he's revealed them to us. He wants us to understand them. This is what we need to know. Then in October, we're going to talk about the next three uh, parts of this series, the, the beliefs of our one faith and our one baptism. We're calling it the way because it's the way of, of salvation for us. And then in January, we'll come back one more time to the last beliefs called Together Forever because it's about our one body, the church, and our one hope, the second coming of Christ. See, because Christianity really is unique. Our God is different from all other gods. Our way of salvation is absolutely different. And the church is different from all other groups and organizations. Now, you might wonder, why do I have to study theology and, and doctrine like this? Can't I just be a good spiritual person who loves God and loves people and I not have to worry about all this doctrinal stuff. No, you can't. You got to know this stuff because it's basic. It's important that you know God because it determines what you believe about everything else. It determines how you live your life. It shapes your worldview. It's the source of your morals and your behaviors. And it's so important that it's essential to having eternal life. Theology is the study of God. And so our big idea is everything flows from what you believe about God. Life is theology. Everything is about God. Theology determines the meaning of life and gives your life meaning. And we need to know this God more than ever in, in, a, in this world of pluralism. So many different beliefs 
The most important question you can answer is, who is my God? Who do I believe is God? Who do I worship? Who do I anticipate I'm going to see when I die? And it's not enough just to know about him. you got to know him personally. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah wrote long ago. He said, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man gloat in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his riches. Let them boast in this alone. What? That they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who is just and righteous, whose love is unfailing. And then I delight in these things. So here's what we believe about God. We believe in one righteous, loving God in three persons and that Jesus is God's Son and Christ, Messiah, Savior. So today we're going to look at God the Father. Next week we'll look at God the Son. And in the third week, God the Holy Spirit. For today, let's focus on this. We believe in one Father. He is our creator, our ruler, our provider, who has revealed himself and his will in his authoritative word, the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. It's all we need for life and behaviors. It's, it, for every person, in every place, at every time, in every situation, the Bible is what we need to have right beliefs, to make right decisions. So, look, I know what I'm going to get into here. It's maybe going to sound a little bit like seminary lectures. But that's okay. That's good. Because I don't think theology has to be dumbed down. You can handle this. This is important that we get these things. Because the Apostle Paul wrote to the young minister Titus and said, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. you got to have sound doctrine. Right beliefs. It's a must. It's foundational. But look, if, if you tried to put all the knowledge about God into our little limited tiny brains, it would be like trying to fill this bottle with the Atlantic Ocean. It's just not possible. In fact, when we come up with our own ideas about God through our own intelligence and intuition, well then, whatever we believe is just as valid as what anybody else believes. The only reason we can understand is because God has chosen to reveal things about himself that we can understand. He fills us up with as much knowledge as we can handle about him. Trying to understand God on our own would be like a fish trying to understand you. It's just not possible unless God chooses to make himself known to us, and he does. He does that through general revelation, you know, through nature. You look around, you know things about God through nature, and through special revelation, through his miraculous works and through his word. Now, the goal isn't just to know facts about God, but to know him personally and in a powerful way, because that's what you were created for. Your purpose in life is to know him, to love him, and to serve him. Life is theology. Life is not about you. It's about God. So the first truth is this. God is real. What kind of person doesn't believe in God? Scripture tells us in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I'm sure there's nobody here among us who has never, ever 
question whether God exists. Of course, we all have the moments when we wonder, is God really real or is it just wishful thinking on my part? And you know what? Scripture doesn't even really attempt to argue for the existence of God. It just assumes it, right? The Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, God. God just is. God isn't some made-up myth that we've come up with to try to give meaning to life. He's not just our own personal projections of our own needs. God just is. We know that to be true. It's foolish to deny the evidence we see in nature, in history, in our own conscience. We just know that he exists, and and to deny the reality of that is to harden our hearts, it's to cloud our minds, it's to sear our conscience. And we've seen how atheism does that. We've seen the advance of atheism in recent years. As people have been swayed more and more by atheistic arguments online, in universities, in books, because many atheists are not content just to not believe, they become evangelists for non-belief because atheism is itself a belief. It's just a faith system that rejects what is intuitively obvious truth. There's a God. But atheism says, no, no, all of this is just one big cosmic accident. You and I have no more objective worth than a worm. We're we're just animals spinning around through space, randomly here, without any purpose, living by the Darwinian law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, who have an entitlement to do whatever we want to do because it's an existential kind of existence. Whatever I want to do is okay. I mean, if there's no God, why not do whatever you want to do, even if it means exterminating other people that get in your way? Ask Hitler. Ask Pol Pot or Mao Zedong. Joseph Stalin. Kim Jong-un. Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood. Why? To get rid of people who weren't worthy of living, people who were undesirable of another race or unwanted in the womb, or people who were weak or unfit to have a good quality of life. Why not get rid of them? If, if this is just a Darwinian planet, there's no meaning, there's no purpose in anything. Nothing's right, nothing's really wrong. Atheism leaves us with no ultimate meaning and leads us nowhere. Its ideas are useless, and it leaves us with complete, baseless, relativistic morals that says it doesn't matter. And and any atheist who lives by any sort of solid morals is doing so because they have borrowed them from religion. Because there is no meaning in atheism. And yet, you know, for those of us who know there's a God, we know it. When a friend asks you, okay, prove it. How do you know there's a God? That's when we begin to stumble coming up with like intellectual arguments. I mean, we've all been there where we're trying to explain something that is just so hard to explain. And yet you need to be aware that there are classical philosophic arguments for the existence of God. We could go through the causal argument or the design argument or the conscience argument or the experiential argument. 
We don't have time to do all that, but there are plenty of great books, both thin and thick, that you can wade through those arguments, or great online debates that you can watch. But what I want you to understand is that our faith is reasonable. It's rational. It makes more sense to believe than not to, if you're willing to study, to dig, to understand what makes the God of the Bible and of Jesus Christ different from all other gods and religions. You know, one time Jesus approached a woman who was a Samaritan in John chapter 4, and he says, you worship what you don't know. And that's, that's what it all comes down to. People worship, but they don't know anything about the one that they worship or the, the ones, you know, all the errors in all the doctrines of the religions of the world can be traced to their doctrine about God, their beliefs about who God is, you name it. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever it is, they can't all be right because they all offer contradictory claims about God. <clears throat> and actually, even without religion, people still have their own private ideas about God, right? They say, well, my God is like this, or your God, you know, well, my God would never and they just make up a God in their own image, one that is to their liking and that agrees with them. I mean, the, the consequences of wrong beliefs about God are enormous. Because the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, claims that if you don't believe in Him, you're lost. You have a false God. And so let's look at the God of the Bible and of Jesus Christ he is transcendent. God is transcendent. Now, when you're a child, you have questions like, who made God? Where did God come from? How old is he? Right? And parents have struggles like, I don't know. I don't know. I, let's ask the minister. Right? You know, they, they say, he just is. Because it's really hard for kids, really for all creatures, to fully understand this God who is supernatural. God is absolutely unique. He is above us, beyond us. He is separate from everything else that has been created because He is the only uncreated thing. He created all matter. Everything has a beginning except for Him. He alone is immortal and imperishable, absolutely self-sufficient, in need of nothing. And yes, we are created in His image. But that doesn't mean that we are given arms and legs and faces that look like Him because He and only He is pure spirit, invisible, infinite. Nothing material can ever represent Him. That's why artists can never capture Him. They try to make Him look like an old man in the paintings. Or they, they put actors like George Burns in the movies about God in the 70s. If you remember those, they were awful. Don't, don't waste your time. More recently, maybe Morgan Freeman, right, and Bruce Almighty. You can't represent God with anything material. That's called a graven image. It's an idol. God is unlimited. He is eternal. Unlimited by and greater than time. He transcends time. Moses, who was in the presence of God, unlike any other person, said this in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
He has always existed and always will. The Alpha and the Omega. He sees and is involved in all times, in all places, outside of history, above history, and yet very much involved in it. Every moment of every era, God has seen it all. And to use some more theological words, he is omnipresent. He transcends space. Not only time, but space. He's everywhere at once, unlimited by space. David asked long ago in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere, because he's everywhere. He's also omniscient, all-knowing, unlimited in knowledge. Paul marveled at this in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And he is omnipotent, almighty, unlimited power. Psalm 147, how great is our Lord. His power is what? Absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. And that leads us to the next attribute of God. He is sovereign, large and in charge. He is in absolute control. He doesn't have to consult with anybody about his decisions, and he doesn't have to answer to anybody about his decisions. He is Lord over all, and that gives him the right to rule. He owns it all. He has the power to bring purpose. Every purpose that he has will come to pass. Because he is sovereign and the judge of the world. And yet we, as these limited, finite, small-brained creatures, will often try to sit in judgment of God. Paul says in Romans 9, Who are you, a mere human being, to criticize God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who made it, Why have you made me like this? Because sometimes we're, we're tempted to say, Well, I can do better than God. We think we know better than God. If I were in charge... Things would be a whole lot better. Let me take you again back to that Bruce Almighty movie. If you saw that, you remember Jim Carrey made that same claim. I can do better than God. He was given the chance, failed miserably. We all would. Only God is capable of being God. In fact, God says this in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, then your thoughts. And guys, when you recognize this important truth in your life, that God is in control, you begin to live your life with more confidence and peace and hope because you recognize he's God and I'm not. I can't do it. I can't control this. I can't carry this weight. But God can. He's in control, and so I'm going to trust him to do what's right. He knows, he knows best. I'm not going to carry the burden of the world on my shoulders. It's his world. And what makes me even feel better about all that is this next attribute. God is righteous. He's always right. He always does what's right. He's the standard for what's right. Holy, perfect, good. Because if you ever had a God who ever did anything wrong or was wrong about anything, he wouldn't be God. He cannot be tempted by evil, 
much less sin. You know, the ancient Greeks came up with all kinds of mythological gods that they created in their own images who were just as mean and petty and selfish as they were. Oh, those ancient primitive Greeks and their myths. Well, we do the same thing today. People create a God in their own image, one who is absolutely non-judgmental, who will let you do whatever you want as long as you don't harm anybody. A tolerant God. That's the God that we've created today. And yet Scripture says His holiness causes Him to hate everything that is evil and sinful, and to love whatever is good and pure. He hates sin, but he loves sinners. Moses sang this song in Deuteronomy 32 that he is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. He is good. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. And that leads to the next attribute, that God is relational. I know a lot of people see God as absolutely unapproachable, that he is distant, that, he is, that he's just some kind of impersonal force, he's some kind of generic higher power, but God is absolutely personal. He's a person with personal names. I mean, the name God is kind of the generic name. He has many other names. One of them is Lord, of course, because he's, he's master, he's boss. But the most personal name that he revealed was to Moses when he gave him that four-consonant name that we don't even know how to pronounce because the Jews held it in such reverence they refused to say it out loud for fear of misusing it. It's a name that we think is pronounced something like Yahweh or maybe, you know, Jehovah. It means I am. I just am. That's, that's all you got to know. I am. And although, you know, God is transcendent, above us, beyond us, separate from us. He's also very personal. He's not just out there somewhere at a distance watching us from afar. He's right here among us, knows you intimately, knows the number of hairs on your head. Another one of those theological words is imminent. God is imminent. That means he, he is near to us. The half-brother of Jesus, James, said, come near to God, and he will come near to you. He wants to be personally involved in your life. And even, look, if God does seem distant to you, it may be because you're keeping him at a distance through your lack of trust, through your rebellion, through your rejection of him. God wants to come near to you. Most of all, Jesus taught us to call God our Father. What a personal term. He's our Father. And of course, Jesus had a unique, absolutely unique relationship with God as His Father, but He taught us to pray to our Father too, which may be difficult for you. You may have trouble relating to that because you, you don't have a good Father or don't have a Father at all that you know of. God is that Father that you really need, the one who will always be there for you, the one who won't let you down. He's our perfect Father, and He reveals Himself to us as a loving father. In fact, he, he reveals himself to us in masculine terms, as father, not as mother. And many try to, to change that around today, but scripture always refers to him as him, or as he, not as she, or as her. Now, of course, God is spirit, so he has no 
anatomical nature to himself, and both male and female are created in his image. But we can't go messing around and changing with his own self-revelation to us as father. I know a lot of Christians loved the uh, best-selling novel and movie called The Shack. Had a lot of good parts to it, but the author was very confused because he shows God to be a woman named Papa. And the Holy Spirit is a woman. Now, at least he got Jesus right, that he was the son of God, not the daughter of God. But look, to worship God as a goddess is not Christianity, it's paganism. We can't change how God has revealed himself to us. And because he's relational, and we're made in his image, we're made to be relational too, to be in community with him and with one another. That's why we're always urging you and encourage you, let's get together to worship. Let's get together in small groups and for fellowship because we're created for community. We're wired for connection to be in relationship, which leads to this last attribute. I mean, there are many more, but the last one we can deal with is God exists as Trinity. The... the majesty and mystery of divinity means that we're never going to fully understand God completely. But the foundational bedrock is this monotheistic faith that we find in Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's all say this one out loud together as well. Here we go. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God and one God only, but not just any God that we can make in our own image. He is the one true God. And yet he also reveals himself as three persons in one being or one essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that word Trinity, you're not going to find in any verse in the Bible, but if you study scripture, you definitely see the concept of three in one, not three gods, that's tritheism or polytheism, and not the false teaching called modalism where God appears in three different ways or modes. Sometimes he's a father, sometimes he's a son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. No, he is three distinct persons within one essence. Yeah, I can't explain it. A little bit beyond our grasp, kind of like the idea of infinity. It's hard to wrap our brains around. But that's what makes God, God. If you could fully understand God, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? He's above us and beyond us. He is, he's awesomely unique. And even from the very earliest centuries, some questioned the idea of the Trinity. How can that be? And they would deny somehow, well, Jesus has got to be less than God, or the Holy Spirit is not divine. And yet the majority of Christians believed it, even though they can't explain it fully and Church leaders came together in the year 325 in the city of Nicaea for a council to make sure Christians understood this is what God teaches, the Trinity. These, these other beliefs are heresies, and these ancient heresies are still with us today in groups like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Oneness Pentecostals. And if you're a part of one of those groups, we love you, but you have been lied to. You might be wondering, well, where do we see this Trinity first taking place? I mean, we get it when Jesus shows up and it's fully revealed. Is it anywhere in the Old Testament? Well, I think we get glimpses of it. 
even all the way back at the very beginning, when the name of God is given in Hebrew, the name is Elohim, which is plural. doesn't mean that there are many gods, but even then we see a hint of the Trinity when God says, let us make man in our image. But certainly in the New Testament, it's fully revealed. We see the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The Son coming out of the water, the Spirit descending, the voice of the Father. And then when Jesus is leaving to return to heaven, he gives us this command, this commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? In the name. Not names, plural, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because guys, you've got to understand, you don't have a gospel without a trinity. Because the Father planned our salvation, the Son accomplished our salvation by coming to this earth, becoming man, dying in our place on the cross to forgive us our sins, and then the Spirit comes and applies that salvation to us personally. So no Son, no salvation. No Spirit, no power to change and live for God. We'll talk more about the Son and the Holy Spirit in the next two weeks. But you know, one of the most well-known and favorite verses in all the Bible is God is love. How can that be? Because if you're going to be love, you always have to have somebody to love. What makes the God of Christianity unique is that he is a trinity. He has always had somebody to love. He has never been lonely. He has never needed to create anybody. He has had this perfect fellowship community within his trinitarian self. But the amazing thing is, is that he chose to make us and love us. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, his prayer for us is may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have you experienced that grace, that love, that fellowship that comes from this three-in-one God? Everything flows from what you believe about God. Do you believe? You can know him today as more than just a generic God, but you can know him personally as your father, as your friend, as your savior. This transcendent, sovereign God, this almighty God, you matter to him. He wants you to be with him forever. That's why he sent his son into this world so that you could be restored, you could be reconciled to him, you could be redeemed if you turn to him. Let's pray about that. Our Father in heaven, our Father, you are holy, you are sovereign, you are our creator, our ruler, our redeemer, and we confess you are the one true and living God, worthy of all of our worship, of all of our submission. God, who, who are we that we would you would even concern yourself with us, and yet you do. God, thank you so much for providing us everything we have. Every breath we take is a gift we don't deserve. Because you tell us that, that our sin cannot be in your presence and that you're grieved by it.
So we want to say we're sorry for our disbelief, our denial, our disobedience. God, we repent. We claim the sacrifice of Jesus as our forgiveness. We thank you for your compassion, your mercy. God, we want to be more like you by the power of your Spirit. And it's even awesome to think that you are living in us now through your Spirit. Your home is in us, God. We we trust you. We give our cares to you because you're faithful, you're good. Even when we don't understand or or when we don't receive what we desire, God, we know that you're going to do what's right. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And Lord, right now, if there are any who are struggling to believe, would you show yourself real to them? Open open their eyes, Lord, to nature, to your works and your word, and most of all, through your Son. Right now, speak to their consciences, tug at their heart, because we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're somebody who would receive Christ today for the first time, to experience a fellowship with him by having your sins forgiven. Uh, If you're ready to confess your faith in him, to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you can do that today. You can be like one of those people you saw in in the video. We can baptize you right here now. Or if you've you've had a faith for a long time, but you've never made that your own decision to unite with, with God in that way and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, do it today. Or whatever your next step is, we want to be there for you. So reach out to us. Text that number, as always, 734-304-7248. Or email us next at southpointccc.com because somebody would like to reach out and help you take your next step to answer your questions, to pray with you, to help get you baptized today. On your way out, if you want to talk to somebody in person, we have people waiting at rooms A, B, C, and D right out in the lobby who would love to hang out with you for a while, okay? So as we get ready to leave once more, reminder to social distance, uh, to, to stay connected with God, stay connected with us. If you're online, we hope you can come back in person very soon as all these new things are kicking off and invite somebody to be with you as we gather back again next week. Have a blessed week.